Good morning. I'm Stu Eisenstadt. I am the co-chair of the Euro Growth Initiative of the Atlantic Council uh, with Jose Manuel Barroso. I want to welcome all of you here. We're very honored to have European Commissioner Pierre Moscovitz, and he and I interacted uh, very favorably during the 1990s when I was ambassador to EU and he was a commissioner and also finance minister, uh, economic minister in France. The purpose of the Euro Growth Initiative is to look at how we can foster greater growth and prosperity in Europe, both now and after the Brexit referendum. Over the last 25 years, Europe has grown at roughly 1% lower GDP growth than the U.S., and it's had a more sluggish recovery from the fiscal crisis. Please use your hashtag, and that is with uh, the uh, EU growth, if you tweet this morning. Europe is facing some very fundamental challenges. And we're trying to provide through our task force and the Euro Growth Initiative with Andrea uh, is leading, and you'll hear more from him shortly, how to stimulate thinking on restoring sustainable economic growth across Europe and confidence in the European system. The initiative aims to energize key stakeholders on both sides of the Atlantic to promote a deeper transatlantic partnership is we build a path for longer-term growth together. The U.S. has a very deep interest in stronger growth in Europe. And we also, by the way, have much to learn from you. This is not a finger-pointing exercise because you do many things much better than we do, including having less income inequality. I think we've made some important progress toward launching this initiative since we began in March of this year. We've addressed some of Europe's most pressing challenges. We've hosted seven European commissioners, several ministers, central bank governors, and with the events and publications that we've already put forward, we look at how Europe can transform the challenges presented by the surge of refugees into opportunities to make a case for TTIP, which is hanging by its fingernails, to explain the benefits of a positive future relationship between the EU and the UK, to assess the health of the European banking sector, and to analyze how Europe can attract more investment to foster growth. Just yesterday, Anders Aslan, a member of our Euro Growth Task Force published a timely brief on Europe's excessive fiscal burden. And you can find a copy of this outside the room, or you can go on our website to read it. Let me now briefly introduce today's keynote speaker. Mr. Moscovici is the EU Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, Taxation, and Customs. As Commissioner, he has the important and difficult task to create the conditions for a sound macroeconomic environment which is conducive to jobs, to growth, and to investment across the EU.
based on sound public finances and a stable single currency. He comes with outstanding credentials. Before joining the commission in 2014, he was a member of the French National Assembly, and he has served as Minister for Economy and Finance in the French government, which is when we first interacted. From 2004 to 2007, he was the Vice President and member of the European Parliament. So he's really done it all. He's been in his own National Assembly. He's been in the European Parliament. He's been a senior minister in the French government and now has one of the single most important positions for the European Commission. So we're absolutely delighted, Mr. Commissioner, to have you here. And without further ado, please welcome the Commissioner to the stage, and we look forward to hearing from you. Dear Ambassador Eisenstadt, dear Andrea, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for inviting me to, to this event and for giving me the opportunity to uh, explain where uh, Europe is considering taking its uh, fiscal uh, policy. In the past, uh, Europe's partners have aired concerns over the um, impact uh, of uh, our fiscal rules on, on growth, and that's one of the points you raised, Ambassador. One minute ago, I'm in Washington, D.C. for the annual meeting of the IMF, as well as meetings of uh, the G7, G20, and also a lot of bilateral meetings. These are forums where uh, such views have been expressed repeatedly. Uh, and these concerns are, of course, very legitimate. Uh, they are also mirrored in Europe. There is a, a fierce debate between those who who support the continuation of fiscal consolidation and those who consider uh, that boosting growth uh, by damaging the rules uh, should be a top priority. And this is a major political debate <coughs> in Europe. Uh, this is even mo more true in my home country, France, which is facing elections. You've got elections here uh, in a few months to come, and we are all uh, looking at that all over the world. Uh, you may know that uh, France uh, will hold those elections. Uh, a significant number of um, uh, candidates for presidential primaries uh, across the political spectrum or on the extreme right also are questioning uh, Europe's uh, debt and deficit rules. Uh, violating these rules uh, is even an explicit and prominent platform plank for many of them. Um, this is not my feeling. What I would like to explain today is how Europe will uh, continue abiding uh, by these rules uh, without <laughs> self-sabotaging and with uh, a good deal of flexibility and intelligence. Let me uh, first go back in time uh, and remind you why the uh, Euro area members agreed to cap the debt and deficit levels, and I will recall the rules that are 60% of GDP for debt, which is not respected by anybody now in the Eurozone, uh, and 3% of GDP for deficit, which is respected by almost everybody uh, except one or two countries, including one I know best. Uh, to put it simply, uh, these rules were the result of uh, a political compromise. Uh, the euro currency is uh, a shield. Uh, joining the euro area means that you will benefit from conditions that were previously available only uh, to Europe's strongest economy, 
meaning uh, mostly Germany. Uh, in exchange, uh, rules were needed to make sure that no member would abuse the system and act as a free rider. So it was, and it still is in a way, a trade-off, a solidarity uh, in exchange uh, for fiscal discipline, i.e. common rules, to keep our house in order. And European leaders uh, cared enough about this trade-off to enshrine it uh, in the treaty, the Treaty of Maastricht, and then the treaties who followed. To uh, put it a little bit more dramatically, these rules are the political conditions for the very uh, existence of the euro. And for those who want to damage the rules, it's useful to recall that. This trade-off is still valid today, uh, even if conditions have changed, of course, since the 90s, uh, growth, inflation, interest rates, resilience of the financial sector. And my job as the uh, EU Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs today is precisely to address current challenges while working with this balance which should be unchanged. Over the years, uh, Europe has applied itself to design smart public policies, i.e. policies that comply with the rules without uh, crippling growth, both on paper but also in practice. First, I, I won't be too long on that, uh, the rules have been gradually refined. Uh, they used to be a rather blunt instrument, uh, catering poorly to particular national situations. Over the years, uh, they have become uh, smarter. Uh, the position of uh, a country in the economic cycle, its efforts to uh, implement major reforms, for instance, uh, are now better taken into account. Smarter rules uh, came with a price tag, which is complexity, and I will address this issue uh, later. Over the past two years, uh, we have also implemented these rules as, as soundly as possible, and this is uh, also one of my best efforts. There is room for another word, which is flexibility. Flexibility in the framework of the rules, not against the rules or outside the rules. For instance, in January last year, uh, we issued detailed new guidance uh, on how investment efforts uh, should be better taken into consideration without, within existing rules in support of jobs and growth, and that is, of course, necessary. We should, we need to encourage those countries which invest uh, or lead uh, structural reforms. Um, another example, in, in, in July this year, 2016, the Commission proposed not to fine Spain and Portugal. Both countries uh, failed to correct their deficits up to legal, legal requirements, uh, although they uh, rolled out rigorous consolidation measures. Um, and uh, we had to decide on that. Um, we decided not to fine. I was criticized for that. We were criticized for that. I'm proud that we did it. I think it was the right uh, decision. Uh, some may uh, actually uh, feel that we have become too lenient. Uh, let me put it this way. Yes, uh, political considerations uh, came into play when we decided not to sanction Spain and Portugal. Uh, one, for example, is that Spain has not uh, a, a definite government for a year, but only acting government. Um, one such political consideration is how low the uh, approval rate of the EU is today. Uh, I think if we would have sanctions, we would have been blamed for that. And the rules would have been uh, criticized more uh, if they were applied in a uh, too blunt way. But we did not engage, I insist that, in uh, politicizing 
no rule was ever broken and no rule will ever be broken as long as this commission uh, is in place. Smart rules and uh, implementation practices are crucial at the uh, current economic juncture and political juncture in Europe. We must all recall that we face a populist threat that is all over uh, our countries. Economic recovery is ongoing, but it is still modest, it is uneven. Uh, disparities across uh, Euro area members' uh, states uh, persist. Unemployment is uh, subsiding, but is still at unacceptably high levels, and you uh, rightly mentioned the problems we face as to Eisenstadt. We have turned to a corner, but there is no time for complacency. Uh, we should not turn exclusively to monetary policy to address uh, Europe's uh, lingering weaknesses. This is a debate we always have here in those meetings in Washington. Uh, I fully support Mario Draghi. I think he's doing really uh, the, the things the right way. But I also fully share uh, his view that monetary policy uh, cannot be the only game in town. So what's left for Europe? Uh, basically a combination of structural reforms, uh, determined support to investment, and of course, responsible fiscal policy. Uh, looking forward, uh, I see three possible avenues for progress on the fiscal front uh, in Europe. The first one is simplification. Uh, complexity uh, is always a political problem. It fuels the suspicion that the rules are not applied or not uh, uniformly applied. And this, in return, undermines the credibility of the European Commission, but also of the rules themselves. Simpler rules uh, would enhance transparency and democratic oversight. Uh, but the, the counterpart is that they would also uh, be blunter, uh, striking the uh, right balance between uh, simplicity and uh, intelligence uh, will not be uh, so easy. Uh, we refer to this as Europe's impossible trinity. We cannot have it all. We cannot have at the same time automatic, simple and intelligent rules. Uh, simple yet intelligent rules call for more discretionary power. In other words, uh, decisions would need to, less, to be less rule-based and more institutions-based. Uh, the um, ECB offers uh, uh, a compelling example of this model, but it does not not have to bother as much with this modern-day nuisance that is called uh, democracy. Uh, so unless we decide to seek inspiration from the taxation without representation car plates I have seen around DC, a fully institutions-based model for fiscal policy is not around the corner for Europe. Uh, so we still have to reflect on that. The second uh, avenue is uh, flexibility. Investments and far-reaching structural reforms feature more prominently in our implementation doctrine. But new developments bring new questions. What about expenses uh, occurred due to the refugee crisis? They are massive, and they will be massive for years. And so we need to address that issue, especially the uh, issue of the integration of refugees uh, in the countries they uh, are installed in. What about rising, uh, and I know this in Washington and, and for you in the Atlantic Council is a, a major source of reflection. What about rising security costs in countries uh, hit recently by terrorist attack? Our American friends ask us to spend more 
on defense. And uh, there is a, a global reflection in Europe on how to do that. Uh, for example, I see that in France. But <coughs> how is it compatible with the rules? So uh, is there here a need to reflect on more flexibility? But they are uh, not sacred or, or forever set in stones, those rules. Uh, this is a lively debate uh, in European political uh, circles today, and I expect that it will remain so for the near future. There are different ways to inject more flexibility uh, in the system. Uh, one I would call the six feet underway. Uh, we could neutralize uh, certain categories of expenditures under the rules. For instance, uh, some in my country ask for defense-related expenditure. This uh, would typically lead to very creative accounting at national level. Uh, uh, so I believe there is uh, uh, I will disappoint some of, some of my friends in France, I would say a cleaner avenue, uh, shared resources pooled from national budgets. National contribution uh, to the pool could be then neutralized uh, uh, under the pact. If we Europeanize defense, it's simpler uh, to uh, have a, an intelligent flexibility. And a clean option would have the additional benefit of prefiguring a fully-fledged fiscal capacity uh, for the euro area. Uh, we'll discuss that. I'm, I'm in favor of such a, a fiscal capacity. Third and last avenue, uh, the overall euro area fiscal stance. I have pushed for this notion to feature more prominently uh, in our thinking, uh, even though in some European capitals it is an anathema. Uh, the US as a fiscal stance as a country, as a federal state. The euro area does not have uh, one such. Uh, what the euro area has is the ex-post combination uh, of uh, 17 uh, largely uh, uh, uncoordinated uh, national fiscal stances. I'm, I'm taking the uh, program countries outside, so it's 18 now because Cyprus is uh, out of the program. In other words, you have a fiscal stance by design, uh, we in Europe have a fiscal stance by chance. You have it ex ante, we have it ex post. Uh, in spite of this flow, a pattern has emerged over the past two years. Uh, in my first year of office, uh, the overall fiscal stance was broadly neutral. Uh, today, thanks to the refugee expenditures, it is slightly positive. Uh, and uh, in his annual speech uh, uh, on the state of the European Union in September, President Juncker indicated that the European Commission will promote uh, a positive fiscal stance for the euro area, and I fully support that. We will have to take into account significant heterogeneities across the euro area to implement this. Some member states uh, will not be able to contribute to the positive fiscal stance uh, due to their elevated uh, debt levels. I think about Italy, for example. Uh, some run uh, surpluses over and above what EU rules require, but are unwilling to make use of their fiscal room, and they are called uh, for that by their partners, I mean Germany. And some may uh, be both able and willing, but constrained under the rules of the pact. That's for France. So we'd have to find the right combination and also to reduce macroeconomic imbalances better than we do today. Designing an overall uh, positive fiscal stance for the euro area will therefore require some dexterity 
countries with low growth, high unemployment, and high legacy debt uh, could contribute to the stance to close the output gap and reduce unemployment. But this will come with heightened risks for their financial stability. Countries with relatively uh, higher growth, low employment, and fiscal room for maneuver could contribute to help these risks in check, but it is unclear how uh, this will benefit to other euro area member states uh, in the short run. Uh, in other words, we may very well engineer overheating in Germany while failing to support growth in other countries, and uh, that's not what we uh, want. Success, so, is possible, but it is not unconditional. Uh, ensuring effective impact will require that utmost considerations uh, is paid not just to the level of public finances, but to their quality and to their structure. We always talk about uh, public expenditures as a block. No, uh, the, the quality of public expenditures is certainly decisive. Spending uh, for the sake of spending is not going to do Europe much good. Uh, what we need is spending that is targeted uh, and that is efficient. And that's what, for example, the Juncker plan of 315 billion euros is about, uh, because it's targeted on the economy of the future, uh, on digital economy, and we are uh, developing a digital single market, on mobilities, and we are also working on that, on energy, and we are also uh, trying to, 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 to create a single market there, on human capital, on research, uh, and on innovation. This will be um, within reach when governments will be serious about systematically evaluating the quality of each euro they spend. And I'm in favor of uh, uh, developing the evaluation culture uh, in our uh, national governments. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen and dear guests, uh, balancing growth and fiscal responsibility uh, in the euro area today is a challenge, uh, but not one we are uh, shying from. Uh, there may be more discussions at G7, G20, or IMF level on these subjects in the years to come. Uh, and this commission, uh, and I am personally, determined not just to shape the debate, but to make uh, a decisive contribution. Uh, that's what I tried to do in this uh, brief intervention. And thank you for listening to me. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Andrea Montanino, the director of the Global Business and Economics Program. Uh, let me start uh, from the short term, what will happen in the coming days. Uh, as, uh, as, you, as you know, member states has to uh, deliver their draft budgetary plans by October 15 as part of the uh, EU semester. Um, Figures that the IMF just presented for the deficit of the overall euro area are not so bad. I would say uh, the 2% for 2016 and 1.7% of GDP for 2017 are better than the aggregate of G7 or the aggregate of G20 advanced economies. So overall, the situation is good. But uh, my first question is whether you expect some surprise or an easy client coming to your table uh, by October 15. Uh, may I mention, uh, suggest some names? Greece, Italy, maybe France, I don't know. Uh, first, uh, we don't have our own forecast yet. We will deliver it in the um, few weeks to come, uh, probably beginning of November. Uh, but uh, it, we share the view of the IMF that the pact 
uh, has created a strong impact and that the deficit uh, in the euro area are now under 2%. I must recall that they were at 6% in 2010. <coughs> and for those uh, who believe that we are too lenient for, with the pact, I think this is a clear proof that the pact works. We can at the same time be intelligent and efficient. Second, uh, one word on process. Uh, as was said, uh, the euro area countries, except Greece, which is under program, have to deliver uh, their uh, draft budgetary plans before the 15th of October. Then there will be a discussion first with the Commission, then inside the Council, because finally the Council takes the decision uh, in order to say whether these draft budgetary plans are or are not compliant with the rules. Uh, I, I will just give you something which is not a secret. I will have bilateral meetings here in Washington, let's say with the Italian minister, with the Greek minister, with the Spanish minister, and maybe with the Portuguese minister. Okay. But, uh, as I said, this commission is not about sanctioning. Our idea is that sanction is always a failure. It is a failure for the rules because it demonstrates that the rules, or it would demonstrate that the rules are not working. It would be, of course, a failure for the country and when we, we talked about Spain and, and, and Portugal this uh, summer, it is obvious that the signal of sanction or fines against Spain and Portugal would have been a disaster politically and economically, would have shown that we are uh, not building confidence. This commission uh, does not uh, believe that sanctions should be avoided if they are inevitable, but they should be avoided if we can do better. And what is better is to discuss with the governments in order to find the right incentives for them uh, to lead structural reforms and to reduce effectively the deficits. And when I come to those discussions with those ministers or others, this will be my attitude. Uh, I will try to find a good deal through dialogue so that we can say uh, that their plans are uh, compliant with the <coughs> rules, uh, with the flexibilities uh, inside the pact. And on this specific point, because I think it's, it's important for an American audience to be a little bit more um, clear on this, there is always a lot of confusion on what flexibility can mean in the current juncture. So, uh, for instance, you would accept a delay on reaching the objective of the the medium-term objective in the, in the medium term. Uh, would you allow for some flexibility for additional uh, investment, uh, the refugee crisis? So where do you see the margin for a discussion with, uh, with, the com with all the countries? I mean, not only those that you mentioned. Because growth is still for, first, weak. We uh, have said very precisely what are the flexibilities inside the pact. It was a communication of the Commission uh, early January 2015. Uh, we should encourage a country uh, which creates a lot of investments. We did with Italy. Uh, we should also help a country which leads structural reforms to gain some time. We also did that for Italy. We have to uh, watch the uh, situation in the economic cycle. We don't have to do that anymore because uh, all countries now are in positive growth with inequalities, but a positive growth. Uh, we said we would be really ready to consider uh, some uh, expenses or expenditures for the refugee crisis or for an earthquake, for example. 
uh, or for a country which suffers uh, from a terrorist attack that was the case with Belgium, for example. So these flexibilities uh, are precise, they are limited, uh, and they are clearly uh, explained. But uh, all in all, the countries have to respect the uh, criteria and to reduce their debt. That's the main problem, for example, with Italy or Belgium. They have to be under 3%. That's the problem with France. Uh, some other countries uh, have uh, more complex issues than the case of Spain uh, or Portugal. We also need to watch uh, the structural uh, effort. That is why I was talking about a kind of complexity. Uh, but again, uh, globally, I consider this works. Uh, and we will uh, end those discussions by mid-November, I hope positively, with all countries. Uh, there is, of course, a, a specific case, which is Greece. Greece is a country under program, uh, and we will try uh, in the weeks to come uh, to, to create a global deal with Greece. And that global deal, to sum up, is first, reforms. Uh, we need to implement reforms that are uh, already uh, in the memorandum of, of understanding between Greece and the EU. Then those reforms can lead to the coming back of confidence in Greece and also coming back of investors. And, and we see positive uh, trends because Greece uh, is now recovering growth. And after that, if there is uh, an agreement on measures plus uh, a, a good political and economic mood, we can consider a deal on debt measures. And I hope that this will be uh, done before the end of the year. And of course, being here in Washington and nearby the IMF, uh, I must say very clearly that we need to have the IMF on board. That is an element of security and reassurance uh, for uh, many partners inside the EU and uh, that the Commission uh, would welcome that. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, going to Greece, I mean, uh, that's a clear path for the next month. But you said, uh, I think this early this week, that you expect something by this Monday, mm -hmm. this coming Monday. So what is the deadline you envisage, or say the positive outcome you envisage uh, for the coming days in order to prepare the ground for the following weeks? I don't want to be too technical, but we uh, signed an MOU with Greece in July 2015. Uh, and uh, what is uh, specificated inside this MOU has to be uh, implemented. We made an agreement, it was in May 2016, that opens the way uh, for the disbursement of more than 10 billion euros. We have disbursed already more than seven. There, is, there are 2.8 billion that can be disbursed now in the weeks to come. For that, first, uh, Greece needs to implement some strong reforms and to decide that in the days to come. We have a meeting of the Eurogroup in Luxembourg, Monday, fly back from here directly to, uh, with other European <coughs> financial affairs ministers. And then I hope that we can decide on Monday on the basis of the uh, commitments by the Greek government that we will disperse another tranche of 1.7 billion, 1.1 plus 1.7 uh, for uh, debt arrears. Uh, and uh, then we will open a second review, and this second review, which is more technical, it's about implementation, uh, will have to be decided also before the end of the year. And if this is done, hopefully we can have a good climate to uh, discuss on debt measures. Uh, that's what we decided in the Eurogroup in May, 
and uh, I really want this uh, roadmap uh, to be uh, filled. Okay, uh, let me move a little bit on the on the medium term now, which is also part of what you you, you said. Uh, you 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 mentioned uh, the simplification, the flexibility, and the positive fiscal stance as a way to. Uh, implement the stability and growth pact. I don't want to use the word reform the stability and growth pact because it has been reformed too many times. Uh, so do you see uh, this approach something that might be deliverable, deliver in the next, say, 12 months as a, as a, as a, as a task for your... Uh... For the next 12 months, you must be conscious that there are elections in November uh, here in the US, but that there are elections uh, I think in March in the Netherlands, uh, in May in France, in September in Germany, and somewhere in 2017 or early 2018 in Italy, not to mention Czech Republic. So uh, the, the political uh, timetable uh, is not so simple for the next 12 months in order to take very important or structural decisions. But uh, having said that, we need to prepare those decisions. As you said, uh, I think there is no political room uh, to uh, change the treaties or to uh, modify substantially the Stability and Growth Pact. There is no political willingness for that, and the Commission is not pushing for that. But there is, uh, 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 I think, some attention inside the Eurogroup, and Jeroen Dijsselbloem, the president of the Eurogroup, showed that during the Dutch presidency, in order to, to make changes, in order to have a pact which is more efficient and uh, which is uh, more growth friendly. And the three avenues uh, I mentioned, I think, can be shared uh, by the finance ministers in the framework of the Eurogroup. Can, be, uh, can they be endorsed by the leaders in the 12 months to come? I'm not absolutely sure. But uh, the, the pact must be respected. We are a rules-based system. We cannot become a fully institution-based system, but we can also reflect on simplifications that are necessary uh, and on, on the rest of the uh, reforms I mentioned. Uh, may I insist on Economic the... Economic coherence. Yeah. May I insist on the deliverables for the next 12 months because, I mean, we, we believe that this is a, a critical juncture for Europe. So going a little bit beyond your specific portfolio, among the projects that the European Commission is, uh, is uh, putting forward uh, for enhancing growth and jobs, which are those that you see as possible outcome in, in the next, say, 12 to 24 months. So the capital market union, the digital single market, the energy, energy union, the banking union, the completion of the banking union. I would say that all those files relate to a single issue, which is uh, deepening and completing the single market. And this is clearly something on which we are making progress. And you mentioned them, capital market union, is still an objective, digital single market, uh, energy. Uh, and <coughs> on this, uh, I'm quite hopeful that we can find good results. Uh, for uh, completing the banking union, there we have a quite tough decision, uh, and I'm afraid that it will, it's difficult to conclude it before the German election, because there is some reluctance uh, in the debate, we know that 
about uh, deposit insurance scheme. Uh, although the Commission proposed its, its own project, which is IDIS. Uh, a second avenue is investment. And on that, there were positive uh, positions taken in the uh, Bratislava summit. Uh, it, it was decided to, to mm -hmm. double the so-called Juncker plan of 315 billion euros uh, up to 2022, and, and first to have 500 million euros delivered by 2020. It is already a success uh, because uh, more than 120 billion euros have been decided in that framework. And so this is a second point on which we can make progress. The third point uh, is about tax issues. It's the other part of my portfolio. I imagine that we can make tremendous uh, progress in fighting uh, tax evasion uh, and uh, tax fraud. And I will uh, deliver a new uh, project, which will be uh, a new project on common consolidated uh, tax base uh, in Europe, which will be as good uh, to fight uh, tax evasion and also to reduce administrative burden for business. I'm not so sure that it can be concluded in 12 months because it's a very yeah. complex um, issue. Uh, and the force is maybe for more for the medium to long term is about deepening EMU. And there, I want to say a political world. We are 28 inside the EU today, but we are going to lead a negotiation with one, with one member state which once decided to leave the Union. The 27 other member states decided that they would go forward. That was Bratislava's purpose. It was to show that there is no pause in the uh, European project, and uh, the accent was made on day-to-day -day Europe, uh, on defense, and on security. But we're not only 28 or 27, we are 19 in the framework of the Eurozone. And it would be a huge mistake, it would be a political fault uh, to neglect the building of a stronger Eurozone. And this is why I'm in favor of uh, a fiscal capacity for the Eurozone and uh, also of a stronger governance of the Eurozone. I'm commissioner for economic, financial, taxation, and customs affairs today. I would like my successor to be the minister of finance of the Eurozone, being as well a member of the commission and a vice president of the commission, and, uh, and sharing the council there, and, and, and being also responsible in the face of the European Parliament, because we need to have democratic accountability. When we discuss about Greece, we discussed that between us uh, in a closed room, and ordinary <coughs> people wonder what's happening there. They uh, have the right to know what's happening there. I, I fully agree. I will send you an op-ed I wrote for La Stampa in, in Italian about the Euro finance minister. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very much online with uh, uh, my uh, Italian colleague, Pier Carlo Paduan, on that. And I myself delivered some proposals when I was finance minister in France in 2013. So, uh, uh, I have a lot of questions, but maybe there are some questions from the audience. Yes, here. Um, thanks, Andrea. Alex Bries here with, uh, with Commerzbank. Just, just to follow up on, uh, on the latest point that you made um, and, and the importance of deepening uh, the monetary union. Building up fiscal capacity, of course, has been difficult so far because of you know, strong resistance in some quarters. And, uh, and the impression is that there has been no way 
to couple a fiscal capacity or build up of a fiscal capacity at the center in Brussels with uh, discipline on the fiscal front in member states. Basically, Germany seems to think that if there's a build-up of fiscal capacity in the center, that is, as you say, a free lunch for everybody else to, to tap into. Uh, how would you counter that argument and would try actually to make the, the case, if it's possible, that building up fiscal capacity could, in fact, lead to stronger national responsibility for the rest of the fiscal capacity that sovereigns, uh, the member states, have. Thank you. First, by recalling the facts, and you did that uh, in your first intervention, uh, it's wrong to consider that the pact uh, is uh, implemented in a lenient way. Uh, it works. It works effectively. Uh, the level of uh, deficits inside the Eurozone was uh, 6% in 2010. It will be uh, under 2% in 2017. There were, at one moment, 11 countries in excessive deficit procedure. Maybe next year, if France uh, respects its commitments, which I think is doable, uh, but I will be very attentive to that. There could be only one, Spain, uh, in particular circumstances that we know, except Greece. There were four or five countries in, in assistance program. There is only one today. So it works. And it will continue working. And when we take decisions which are favorable to Spain and Portugal, I think they are politically and economically wise. So uh, I, I really uh, want to, 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 to counter this opinion that the pact is uh, not implemented in a strong way. But what we need is not only to have a strong monetary policy and uh, also a, a sound fiscal policy, we need to have structural reforms and investment. What should be our goal in Europe? Our goal must be more growth and more jobs. And if it's not the case, all of your Europe and in the Euro area, then the populists will win in the end. And we must have that political debate, including with our German friends. I can understand that in the framework of the refugee crisis and uh, in the approach of a tough election, elections are always tough. Uh, it's probably too early to make the progress. But I know that uh, in Berlin uh, <coughs> and in the ruling parties, uh, several of them, uh, there is still the idea that we could move on afterwards. So we need to prepare the ground. The Commission uh, is asked to prepare a white paper uh, for the 60th anniversary of the, Treaty of, anniversary of the Treaty of Rome in March in Rome, uh, and we will do our job. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's a difficult year because of all these elections, but it must not be a blank year for the debate and for the conception of the solutions for the future. Uh, we have so many questions, but I have to look at the watch, unfortunately, and the, the commission has to leave, and we have the other part of the panel. So um, we will uh, deliver a task force report before March 2017, and we will send you to have some ideas on what we see on, our, on this side of the Atlantic that Euro can do. I wish, I want really to thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, and I invite Marie on the, on the stage and uh, the panelists for commenting your, <coughs> your remarks. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you, Commissioner. And um, I really very much look forward to the next 30 minutes. Do you want to stay with us? <laughs> um, no, we, uh, I look forward to um, talk prosperity and growth in the next 30 minutes with this esteemed panel um, with Bart Orsefeld, Governor Costa, and Dr. Paul Sheard. Um, just very briefly, I will um, introduce the panelists, but you also all um, received the bios yesterday, and there are still some in, in, in extensive bios outside. Um, governor Costa has been the governor of the Bank of Portugal since June 2010. He's also a member of the Governing Council and of the General Council of the European Central Bank, of the General Board of the European Systemic Risk Board, and the Financial Stability Board Regional Consultative Group for Europe. Bart Orsterfeld is the Managing Director and the Head of Moody's Sovereign Risk Group. In this capacity, um, Bart supervises Moody's global team of sovereign risk ana uh, analysts, helps maintain the quality of ratings, and assures analytical leadership. And Dr. Paul Sheard is Executive Vice President and Chief Economist of S&P Global. In this capacity, he spare, spearheads the co company's economic and market thought leadership and engages with br a broad range of market participants and external stakeholders. I very much look forward to our conversation. And to directly kick off the conversation, I would ask each one of you to um, react to what we just heard, both in the commissioner's speech and also during the very interesting Q&A. In a few sentences, what would each of you say are the elements and points that you could fully agree on? And what are the elements where you see points for disagreement? But why don't you start? Yeah, thank you. First, let me set the record straight. You, you hold a very old bio of mine. I haven't had that job <laughs> in two years. I'm a chief credit officer at Moody's, and it's uh, my pleasure to be here. And I want to thank the Slovak Council Presidency and, and the Atlantic Council uh, for, uh, for their interest in our views. I think the commissioner's comments highlighted uh, the dexterity needed to navigate this particular part of, of European economic integration. Um, he cited the electoral calendar, so I don't need to repeat that, but um, I'm from a small European country myself, I'm from the Netherlands, um, and uh, which has its own elections. During the debt crisis, European policymakers were always fond of saying, well, look, uh, we know there's a lot of noise, but the three large political blocs in Europe, so the Christian Democrats, the Social Democrats, and the Liberals, uh, they always hold the median voter, and they always hold 60% of any voting distribution, and are all supportive of the Euro European project. So one of the things we've commented on, and it's not just about Brexit, um, but, but in all these elections, is that uh, we are much more focused than we were on political risks um, now even than we were uh, a few years ago during the debt crisis. Um, and uh, what you see it doing is eating up uh, a certain amount of capacity. And I, uh, we're market observers, I'm not in the rooms in Brussels, but uh, for the next two years, instead of progress on the banking union or instead of progress on other important economic files, a lot of time will go to, um, to dealing with uh, the Brexit negotiations, that's, that's inevitable. Um, as well as to, uh, to handling this influx of refugees, which I'm always a bit surprised when people talk about the refugee problem because for a continent with the demographics that Europe has, this is the economic equivalent of a birthday gift. You know, that, uh, this is a massive opportunity, relatively young, relatively well-educated, relatively entrepreneurial uh, inflow of people. It's, it's in everybody's economic uh, benefit. 
Um, that's one comment I would make, so that's broadly political, geopolitical risks. Uh, the second I would make is to, to echo his comments on, um, on the European Central Bank. Uh, we anticipate, uh, and, and I think the commissioner's comments corroborate that, some fiscal loosening and, and some kicking of fiscal policy because uh, the European Central Bank uh, does seem to do a lot of it by itself always has an extra tool in its arsenal. Even when we think it's using its last tools, there's always new tools to be found. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that they haven't lifted uh, growth inflation expectations or um, you know, the, the tools are getting less and less effective, I guess would be uh, a friendly assessment. So I'll leave it at that, but okay. uh, look forward to discussing more. Perfect, thank you. Governor Costa? Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure. First of all, we need to avoid the one idea. Europe is growing. It's growing 1.6 this year. 1.7 this year, it will be growing. 1.6 next year and the year after. This means that the question that we have is not the growth, but the growth that we need to absorb, to absorb unemployment and also to give Room of maneuver to deal with other with other problems like refugees problem, and this means what we need to see is what can be done in order to increase growth, mm -hmm. because growth is there. First point. Second, we need to understand that till now we have a economic and monetary union with a monetary union arm that is efficient, that is showing that is efficient, and is the only game in town. And we, know, we need now to ensure that economic arm is playing its role. And the economic arm is very dependent on a coordination and a cooperative game. And there is no cooperative game if there is, there is no broker that will assure this cooperative game. And this means that we need to ensure that someone at the center stays, uh, I will say, the responsibility to ensure that the group's interests are prevailing on part interests. And this means that it needs to be independent, to be empowered, and to have the legitimacy to do it. It's why it's very important for me to have an independent Eurogroup president that will be empowered to do the cooperative game that we are looking for. Second, that will be in answering to the a special format of the European Parliament with members states that are part of the Eurozone and at the same time to get from this side the legitimacy to speak with the partners because either way it's impossible to ensure that this cooperative game that is the coordination of uh, economic policies within the Eurogroup will be optimized because everyone is looking from his standpoint of view that is no, not the whole standpoint of view. And in that point, it's necessary to, to have someone that looks to the fiscal space of each partner and asks for uh, the right answer in terms of fiscal mm -hmm. uh, policy, but also in terms of social policy, asks for the social policy answer. The, it's impossible to look to it in uh, idea with the idea that one size fits all, because there is a diversity, and the Commissioner Moscovici underlined this point, but it's also impossible to, be, to have a cooperative game that will be 
op optimal if someone stays beyond what is necessary to do. Second point in what concerns the fiscal space, we need to distinguish between fiscal space and fiscal stance. There are countries that have no fiscal space but need to review their fiscal stance, looking to their expenditure and looking to their tax system in order to have a fiscal, a fiscal stance that is growth-friendly. Mm -hmm. This means to review what are the expenditures, those that are needed for social cohesion, those that are needed for growth, and those that are a waste of money. And it's necessary to do that. And the same in the tax system, in order to ensure that we have the right answer on the fiscal side. But at the same time, we need to understand one thing, that the key point on that area is to grow, to increase the potential growth. Without increasing potential growth, there will be two side effects that are very um, difficult to manage. We don't create jobs. And we don't create an increase in the natural rate of interest. And if we don't increase the natural rate of interest, we have a problem in what concerns the, I will say, the financial stability. And this is the point that we need to care about. When we speak about potential growth, we are speaking about natural rate of interest, and we are speaking about a long-term financial stability stance. Without that, it's impossible to speak about financial stability stance because you care of one side and you are uncovering the other side. You need to care about the two sides, and this means that the problem with the monetary policy is not the, the low interest rate environment. The problem is that we are not on the side of potential growth. We are not an answer in increasing potential growth, increasing natural rate of interest. If natural rate of interest was high, the present situation in what concerns monetary policy will be very favorable to increase the growth of the euro. It's why for me it's clear that we need to have the two arms articulated, the two arms optimized, mm -hmm. and for that there is a missing actor that is the, the Eurogroup president that mm -hmm. needs to be a, uh, a full-time president, independent, and uh, accountable to someone that is European Parliament, national parliaments, in order to give him the legitimacy that is needed. Either way, it's impossible to have an optimal answer from the economic side. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. What do you think, Paul? Uh, <coughs> thanks very much, Maria. It's a pleasure to be uh, back here again, another full room. You yes. really you know how to pack the house here at the Atlantic <laughs> Council. So, um, you know, you ask agree, disagree. Maybe if I just uh, kind of give some, some sort of things that strike me. Um, you know, as a Absolutely. chief economist sitting in New York, looking at Europe uh, from afar across the Atlantic, um, and maybe relate that to some of the comments of, of the commissioner. I mean, the first thing is, you know, I see a, a large economic area where there is still a very serious deficiency of aggregate demand. Um, you can see that in the unemployment rate, for example, the unemployment rate, uh, which are around these numbers, but, you know, pre-crisis was about 7%, it went up to 12%, it's only down to 10%. You can see that in levels of GDP, uh, size of the, Euro, Euro, the Eurozone economy. Now, let me focus on that because I think it's the, the most problematic part. Um, has only barely recovered the pre-crisis 2008 level. It's about 1% above. That number for the US is about 11%. So in this very muted recovery from... Oh, 
sorry, I lost it, didn't I? Okay. Well, it was, it was, all, it was all bad news, so you should be enjoying it. In this very muted recovery, in this very muted recovery in the developed world that we've seen, a 10 percentage point gap, if you like, has opened up between the Eurozone and the US in terms of GDP. So clearly, there are problems in, with the, the, the macroeconomic situation in, in, in Europe. Um, and I guess when I hear European policymakers speak, I'm looking for sort of signals and signs that they're kind mm -hmm. of on the case. Um, and, I, and I think, we, you know, I, I don't sense enough urgency, I guess. Now, the governor made a very important point about um, you know, structure, potential growth, but one of the points that, which is at the end of the day what really drives living standards, but one thing, you know, let's not forget that you also need to have aggregate demand in line with the potential of the economy and if you have a big output gap you don't have that and there's a negative feedback loop because if you allow unemployment to stay too high for too long in, in Europe, that what started out as cyclical uh, unemployment will turn into structural unemployment. That, means not just tragedy for the people concerned, but a, but a permanent impairment of the long-term potential growth. So I, I guess my first point is <laughs> the urgency issue. Now, if you read uh, President Juncker's State of the Union that was mentioned, I think the first page of that is a very sobering document to read, where he talks about Europe in an ex existential crisis. And I don't think he's just talking, talking about Brexit. The second, I guess, impression that I had is, um, heard a lot about rules uh, today. And, and, and I was very interested to hear the Commissioner say two or three times that it was unrealistic to expect uh, Europe to go to an institution-based framework. I don't exactly know what that means. Um, but when I look at the Eurozone, when I look at the European Union as well, what I see is still major problems in the, call it the economic, the monetary, the political architecture of the European Union and within that, importantly, the Euro area. So I would go back to the four presidents report of 2012. I would go to the, t the 2015 five presidents report, which was all about completing the economic and monetary union or building a genuine economic and monetary union. Now, the commissioner did mention uh, the white paper in March, which I understand will be a follow-up mm -hmm. to that five presidents report from last year, which basically said, Europe, the European Union, needs to complete the banking union, needs to build a capital markets union, but there is also you know, important references in there to going towards fiscal union. And, and, and I would really sort of urge more of a front-loading there because, again, we heard a lot today about there's been this wonderful improvement in budget deficits from 6% to 2%, but the budget deficit should not be an end in itself it should be a means to an end. And the end should be growth and prosperity. Um, and one of the problems, as I see, and I think many economists who look at the Eurozone in particular see this, is an, an architecture where you have a monetary union without a fiscal union, which severely constrains the ability of member states to engage in countercyclical fiscal and monetary policy they don't have their own monetary policy, obviously, by definition. But those policy tools are severely hampered. So again, we heard about flexibility. The more flexibility that, that policymakers in Europe can muster to, um, you know, to deliver better economic outcomes uh, uh, sooner, I think, I think that's very much called for. My last point just is more on the politics, which you know, for an economist takes you into uncomfortable territory. But, 
another very common thing that we hear all the time is sort of elections coming up. And we have you know, Dutch, German, French, heard about Czech, uh, Italy at some time. And implicitly, when I hear the, the reference made to elections, and sometimes I ask the explicit question, it, it, it sort of feels like we sort of, you know, they're a bit of a, a hurdle. We need to somehow navigate them. And then once the elections are over, we can move forward with some of these structural issues. Um, I think at the end of the day, unless Europe uh, derives, and the European leaders derive political legitimacy uh, for what they need to do to really put the European Union and the Eurozone back on a sound footing, that has to be driven by politics. Politics can't be something that sort of, you know, puts the game on hold for a while while we get around it, elections out of the way, now we can do something. I, I think the people of Europe need to be uh, very much engaged in defining uh, their future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I would now like to just move to, Andrea already touched upon this with the commissioner, um, the IMF um, budgetary projections that um, have been released recently. Um, Andrea mentioned this before, but for all of you who weren't in the room, overall, the euro area budget balance is projected at 2% of GDP in 2016 and 1.7% of GDP in 2017. And in the coming days, the deadline is October 15th, all member states will submit their budgetary plans if they haven't done so already. Um, Bart, I think um, I want to start with you, mm -hmm. if that's okay. Um, which countries do you expect to maybe pose some kind of a problem or let me pose it differently. Where do you see the biggest differences or deviations between the proposals that the member states put forward and that the IMF put forward? And as a direct follow-up question, how do you think, um, how do you balance the member states' need to re respect the rules of the stabili Stability and Growth Pact on the one hand, while also on the other hand aiming for higher growth rates on the other? I, I very much agree with something Paul said earlier, is mm -hmm. that these 3% numbers and the 60% numbers are, aren't goals in and of themselves. They're, they're means to an end. Mm -hmm. um, I think, listening to the commissioner, they view the process as being quite smooth this year. You know, they, they all flew to Washington and nobody's talking about the euro area. They're talking about other things like emerging markets or mm -hmm. China. Um, and so I think it'll be a relatively smooth process from, from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, how long this breather lasts, uh, you know, global conditions are still relatively benign, but the UK was a bright spot a year ago. Clearly, it's now more of a source mm -hmm. of concern. The US had solid growth, has solid growth. Um, what next year, year will bring with, you know, the rise in corporate leverage and, and, and the uncertainty around the election outcome is, is a question. Uh, China is growing more slowly and, uh, you know, uh, Brazil, Russia aren't helping out. So. Uh, the global growth conditions are, are feeble, so it, I don't know how long this, this cheerful period of relatively easy budgetary process in the euro area uh, can, can or will last. And I, as the commissioner said and I mentioned earlier, there will have to be some fiscal mm -hmm. uh, loosening here and there, where exactly and how to do that uh, between the countries that have the space but maybe not the willingness and, and countries that have the willingness but not the space um, will be difficult. I think the next few days, they, Greece, I think, uh, I would echo the commissioner. It's a case in part. It's it's uh, it's in a program. Um, I think Spain, you know, hasn't had a government in a year. Is is politically in a in, in what is probably best described as a stillmade situation. Mm -hmm. And I expect we'll hear about Italy, Portugal, and France as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, 
Paul, do you maybe want to comment on that too? Do you agree, disagree? Where do you see growth going in 2017? Well, I, you know, I think we, what we're seeing at the moment is, you know, relative, as the governor mentioned, you know, relatively positive situation where Europe can, uh, the European Union or the Eurozone can grow, you know, one, one and a half percent. But that's a base case scenario, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's lots of things to worry about. And, you know, how Brexit plays out is, is clearly near the top of the list, you know. What happens in China with the, with their debt overhang is also you know something that uh, is potentially hanging over the global economy, but um, you know without getting into the weeds of, of the budget of the budget uh, discussions there, um, again I was I was struck two and a half weeks ago, in uh, New York a lot of the leaders were in town for the General Assembly, um, Italian Prime Minister Renzi spoke at the Council on Foreign Relations I don't know if anybody tuned into that. Uh, and it was on the public record, mm -hmm, so I can, mm -hmm. I can say what he said. But, you know, he said two lines which really hit me right in, in the middle of the forehead. He said, austerity is not the way for Europe. It is the way to destroy Europe. So I find a, li a little bit of a disconnect when we have this discussion about the decimal points on budgets, etc. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it feels very much like, you know, the tail wagging the dog a little bit here. But when I hear the leader of the third largest economy in the Eurozone make a statement in public, which is really you know, quite a shocking statement. Um, I think that's a wake up call. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, again, my perspective would be um, step back a little bit here. Okay. It's not just about rules. Rules, we shouldn't be worshiping at the feet of rules just because we have those rules. We should be, we, Politicians, policymakers, economists, whoever, society, you know, should be looking at the welfare of people. And you know, wh where is Mr. Renzi coming from? I'm, I'm not here to defend Italy, but as an economist, I look at the data, and I mentioned that the eurozone GDP is only barely one percent above mm -hmm. the 2008 peak. That number for Germany is more than six percent above, but for Italy, it's eight percent below. Mm -hmm. So there's a 14% gap opened up between the levels of GDP. So, you know, there is something really serious and compelling that I think we need to look at in the Eurozone. Um, and I do think at the end of the day, it's all about the architecture. So it's not about the rules, it's about what is the right institutional framework economically, monetarily, politically for Europe. Um, and I, I don't think we should lose sight of that debate. And it worries me a little bit that that debate has actually receded. If you look at Bratislava, for example, mm -hmm. um, of course, terrorism, security, common defense, these issues are important. Um, but th it was supposed to be, we're not going to talk about Brexit. We're going to talk about the way forward for the European Union. Mm -hmm. I hardly saw any reference in that uh, declaration mm -hmm. to what to do about the economic and monetary union, which I think has many of these economies in a kind of macroeconomic vice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Governor Costa, I would actually like to take advantage of the fact that we have the governor of the um, Bank of Portugal here. And I read a lot about the Portuguese banking sector lately. And, you know, the, the IMF also wrote in a June 30 report, the Portuguese banking sector or the Portuguese banking system continues to operate in a challenging environment. What exactly does that mean, and how would you assess the state of the Portuguese banking sector today? With pleasure. 
after I will go oh, back absolutely. to the whole institutions <laughs> question, because it's a very important. Mm -hmm. In what concerns the banking, Portuguese banking sector, Portuguese banking sector is with the right level of capital, it's why it's complying with the rules of your European banking union, mm -hmm. is with a, is doing the adjustment is needed. It was done a big deleveraging. This means that they came from a size of 170 to a size of 105, 106. This means a big adjustment in their business model. They are doing the reduction of costs, but they are suffering with the impact of the crisis on the SME side. And this means, like other countries, and I will know. I will not name any other. <laughs> they need to absorb the uh, NPLs that are on their balance sheet. These NPLs are well uh, evaluated. It's why they were able to pass the QR and other exercises and stress tests. But it stays like a, a burden because it's not productive, it's not generating income, and it's consuming capital. And the problem that we have for the banking sector is that they need to raise capital in order to get rid of these assets that are not generating income mm -hmm. and in order to increase their profitability and in order to increase the capacity to support recovery. But as they have a lower profitability, they are in a vicious circle. They have a, they have a low profitability. This means that they are not attracting mm -hmm. enough capital, and as they are not attracting enough capital, they have no possibility to get rid of these non-performing loans, and it's a vicious circle. Mm -hmm. They need to cut this vicious circle, they need to go to the market and to show to the investors that they have a business plan, plan that will be very attractive when they, they get rid of these non-performing loans. Mm -hmm. And it's what they are doing now. And if you look to our financial system, you see that the four main banks will be at the end, I think at the nine-month period, on their, his own way, able to solve the problem. It's not a, a pro, it's, it will be a problem that will be solved by each one in a different way, mm -hmm. but the question is to raise capital, to get rid of these non-performing loans, to, to raise profitability and to increase the capacity to attract investors and to lend to the economy. And this is the point. But it's not a peculiar to the Portuguese case. It's a common problem of every country that was, was going through a mm -hmm. crisis and where, the, namely, the SMEs were suffering with this crisis. There is nothing new if you compare with the economics and book. It's something that was clear. It was impossible to see uh, what will be the extension of the crisis in 2011 when we began our adjust adjustment program. We were with the projections that were better than we, mm -hmm. the final result. It was impossible to see at that time what will be the number for NPLs. But what we see is that banks were able to cope with this problem uh, as the, it was I will say emerging, and now they, they, have, they need to have a, a final uh, solution that means to get rid of assets that are well priced, but if they want to get rid of uh, one shot, they need to accept a different price, and different price means need of capital.
let me go only one, one minute on the question of uh, rules and institutions. We need to understand that the European Union is a very peculiar exercise in sharing sovereignty. It's an experience that was not done anywhere. And there is a balance will always between rules and the institutions. At the beginning, the institutions were there, the rules were there, namely in the competition side. And we were in a situation where the institutions were, I will say, able to cope with the new problems till the, uh, till the creation of single market. When we had the single market creation, it was necessary to go ahead with the monetary union mm -hmm. in order to ensure stability. And when we decided to go for, for a monetary union, it was necessary to ensure trust among the partners in order to be able to cope mm -hmm. with different I feel, uh, preference at the national level in terms of inflation, in terms of monetary policy, and, the and to ensure that all will be together. And for that, it was necessary to establish rules to ensure trust among the partners. The debt rule, the debt rule, are the part of this, I will say, disagreement. It's a marriage contract. In like <laughs> in a marriage, you need to have a contract, we have some rules, and we need to ensure that all are behaving within these rules. When the rules became normal, normal in the behavior of people, like in a marriage when you are sure that you don't need to look if everything is going in the right, you can give more leeway to go ahead, and it's where comes institutions. And we need to make a good dialogue between rules and institutions. Rules are needed for institutional uh, step forward. And the institutional step forward means that there will be more flexibility interpreting the rules. I and could not agree more. <laughs> Unfortunately, time flies when you're having fun. So um, I heard that I got a three minute warning a few, a few <laughs> seconds ago um, that um, it's about three minutes between us and the coffee break. So we don't want to stand in the way too long for that. However, as a closing question, to tie this back into the overall um, topic of our panel and the conference, um, if you had one minute, and you basically really just have one minute, <laughs> um, to explain to someone where do you see the economic future after Brexit, and what are the two main deliverables for Europe in the next two months, what would you say? Okay, uh, well, in one minute. Um, <laughs> Brexit is, uh, mo at the European level, mostly just a very complex file. We're starting to publish research about details of Brexit, Brexit such as passporting, um, and you see the complexity of each sub-item, and, and you see the capacity that's going to take up, so that's one comment. Uh, we downgraded our growth forecasts for the UK, mostly, and a little bit for Europe. Um, in response to the vote, uh, it's very questionable whether this has positive ramifications for the UK and especially within the UK for the people who voted for Brexit, uh, ironically. Mm -hmm. um, uh, deliverables for Europe, I, uh, we're, we're market observers. I don't think we can give recommendations like that. I, I, um, what struck me from, from the commissioner's comments was the dexterity required to, to manage mm -hmm. the next two or three years and make progress on key files. And I think. Uh, there's, there's a lot of complexity in, in each of these files. 
Perfect. Thank you. Paul? Well, should I jump? Yes. Well, again, um, I mean, just in terms of you know, Brexit in Europe, I mean, I, I've, I've sort of used the term that, that Brexit is a, you know, is a wake-up call uh, for the European Union. In other words, it's as much about mm -hmm. what Britain, you know, Britain and how it forges its future, uh, it's, it's as much about Europe and, and, and what happens to the European, the European Union 27. Um, so I think there the issues really are, uh, you know, it, to me, the whole debate, the flavour at the moment is, is a little bit too sort of zero one. You know, you're in or you're out. Um, you know, the UK has been part of the European Union in this project for, you know, 60 years or so. There's an enormous amount of glue in the system. Um, the United Kingdom is not going to Brexit and then just float off into the mid-Atlantic. It's still <laughs> going to be sitting there on the edge of Europe. So I think on both sides, just sort of, you know, perhaps some cooler heads prevailing and, mm -hmm. and, and a little bit more sort of creative and sort of friendly thinking about how do we sort of recontract. This is not about saying goodbye and never seeing each other again. It's, it, is, it is a recontracting kind of issue. And I think the point the governor made, we haven't heard this word a lot today about sovereignty, mm -hmm. that there is this kind of uh, uh, selective pooling of sovereignty uh, in the European Union, both in the economic sphere, political sphere um, in terms of freedom of movement, et cetera, as well. And I think that's what a lot of the, the issues in, that have come, have come to the fore in Europe over the last few years, Brexit just being the latest example, sort of all about is, is, that, is the way that Europe has decided to share the various elements of sovereignty really the optimal mm -hmm. way to do it? And that's why I come back to the political point. You can't leave the politics out of this. So it's not a two-month solution. Yeah. But I think, you know, front-loading and having that in your field of vision, I think is very important. What is the Europe that the Europeans want to build for the future? And how do you make it work? Because I don't think it has been working very well in the last few years. Thank you. Governor Costa, what do you yes. think are the two main deliverables? First of all, you know, it concerns Brexit impact. It was, for the moment, smaller than we were expecting. Second, as you said, uh, it's clear that we are in a need of a new contract between UK and the European Union. And it's important for everyone to know what will be the contract in order to bring down the uncertainty. And the contract will be for the European Union, one that, uh, that will be compatible with the, pres the preservation of single market, the preservation of four freedoms, and the preservation of the evolution of the European Union. It's clear that at the end of the day, it will be uh, understood by UK that there were, there were a lot of beneficial effects of being part of the European Union. And it's also important for the European partners to understand that to stay in the European Union is more beneficial than to go other way. And I think that the Brexit will be, at the end of the day, uh, I will say, a fact that will increase the cohesiveness of the European Union, not the contrary. You will see. For that, it is necessary to increase growth, because the growth is the cement that we need for the project to go ahead. If there is no growth, there will be some doubts. And it's why I'm in agreement with your idea about the aggregate demand increase and the need of autonomous increase in aggregate demand through the use of the 
fiscal space that is available and through optimal coordination of policy. What is important is to ensure that the process is a well-designed process, that there is no increase in uncertainty, and every side knows very well what will be set state at the end, because it means that for everyone it's clear where it will be uh, possible to invest or not to invest, what will be the relationship. In what concerns the, the next year, or deliverables, my will, uh, what I will wish, what I will wish is uh, more, uh, I will say, more close coordination among economic policy uh, ministers, and it goes beyond finance ministers. Second, more a clear vision about social measures. Third, a clear utilization of aggregate demand increase on the case of states that have poor infrastructure, have fiscal space, and are with a surplus. And finally, and it is very important, to ensure that there is an institutional framework that will be possible, that will encompass all that. And as we know very well that it's not possible to do it in, within the uh, European Union framework, we need to do it in the Eurozone framework, and it will go by two steps. First step is more intergovernmental through the finance ministers, and the second step, I hope, that it will be enlarged to the European Union. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. I could not agree more. We need more cooperation. We're always stronger with allies, as the conference teaches us today. Um, I hope you will be able to join us for the session after the coffee break. Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much to the panel for this enlightening conversation. Thank you all.